Welcome to this weekly Audio Digest edition of The National, from the 10th of February to the 13th of February 2020. Read by volunteers at Q and the View, Print Speaking to the Blind. Recorded at our studios at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre. Here are the headlines. Dangerous storm Kira causes havoc in Scotland. Snow sets to follow days of wind and rain across country. Labour forced to deny colluding with anonymous loyalist Twitter troll to target the SNP. Cherry urges SNP to force Prime Minister into any ref 2 court fight. But Wishart warns losing could set case back significantly. Opinion. £840,000 grant for Scottish historic conservation. Nicola Sturgeon's Brexit defeat is every bit as profound as Jeremy Corbyn's. Support for independence will be unaffected by SNP scandal. The story behind an ignored part of Scots history. How calls for reform led to the radical war of 1820. Unique weather leads to crossing closure. Drivers are forced to take 35 mile diversions and endure two hour delays. £20 million boost for Scott families. Tens of thousands claim new payments. UK government is fueling independence. Why the Irish election result is a clarion call to Scots. The National. The National. Monday, February 10th, 2020. News. Dangerous storm Kira causes havoc in Scotland. Snow sets to follow days of wind and rain across country. This article is by Martin Hannan. After a weekend of high winds and deluges of rain, Scotland faces two of possibly three days of potentially heavy snow and icy conditions, according to weather warnings issued by the Met Office. Yellow warnings of snow and ice have been issued for the next three days for all of Scotland except Orkney and Shetland. The Met Office warning states, Heavy snow and strong winds will combine to lead disruption to travel, especially over higher routes. This could lead to possible travel delays on roads, standing some vehicles and passengers, and possible delays or more cancellations to rail, ferry and air travel. There was widespread travel disruption over the weekend and there appears to be no immediate respite for air, rail and ferry passengers who are urged to check services before travelling. The Met Office anticipates that power cuts may occur and other services such as mobile phone coverage may be effective. The looming snow is the continuation of Storm Kira which had a huge impact across Scotland causing a serious incident in Perth in which three people were injured after part of a pub roof caved in following the collapse of a chimney breast. Emergency services were called to the scene at the venue in St John's Suite. Perth, just before 7.30pm on Saturday, three people were reported injured, but police scholars said none of the injuries were serious. In the Scottish borders, the side of a guesthouse in Howick collapsed into River Teviot early yesterday morning. A spokesperson for police scholars said, At around 9.30am, police in Howick were made aware of the structural damage to the bridge house guest house. Officers attended and assisted the fire service at the scene. The building had been evacuated and there has been no injuries. Scottish Borders Council stated building control officers have been involved in the assessment of damage caused to a riverside building in the Albert Road area of Howick. 
Flooding in low-lying areas of Jedburgh resulted in the closure of subways, while flooding also impacted on the Tweed Green area of Peebles. Some streets in Newcastleton were also affected by flooding, but no properties were impacted. The A699 at Springwood Park, Kelso, was also closed due to flooding, and the council is now warning of blizzard conditions across almost its entire area. The River Niff in Dumfries burst its bank and water spilled onto the streets of White Sands area of the town during the early hours of yesterday morning. Some 15 regional flood alerts and 60 local flood warnings are enforced with the Scottish Environment Protection Agency, SEPA, warning of more problems to come. Nigel Goody, SEPA's duty flood manager, said Storm Kira has arrived with a dangerous combination of high tides, high storm surge, and high inshore waves across coastal areas. Avoid crashing waves and follow the advice of emergency services and local councils. Cabinet Secretary for Transport Michael Matheson said, The Met Office is telling us that we are facing a pr prolonged period of adverse weather with Storm Kira bringing strong winds and rain to most of Scotland. We're also being told to expect snow and high winds throughout Monday and on Tuesday morning. So there is potential for significant disruption of the trunk road network, as well as other modes of transport. This article is by Martin Hannon. The National. Monday, February 10th, 2020. News. Labour forced to deny colluding with anonymous loyalist Twitter troll to target the SNP. This article is by Andrew Learmont. Senior figures in Glasgow Labour have denied being in cahoots with an online loyalist troll accused of stalking, intimidating and harassing SNP councillors. In recent months, the anonymous Bears Fights Back account has tweeted information with many in the city's SNP group believe could only have come from Labour sources. The account, which has since been suspended, is no fan of the SNP and Glasgow City Council leader Susan Aitken in particular. Much of the anger comes from his belief that she is anti-protestant and stems from the 2018 controversy over the Rangers fan zone. The dispute started when the club applied for permission to host family-friendly games and entertainment at a council-owned facility opposite Ibrox. The application was knocked back by the council. Supporters of the club suggested the rejection had more to do with the politics of the SNP administration than a lack of support from the community council, which was cited as the reason at the time. Last year at 10.45am on November 20, the Bears Fights Back account tweeted about a letter from Frank McCavity to Aitken calling on her to resign. He wrote, Susie, any interesting emails in this morning? You didn't have another party leader asking you to resign, did you? However, Aitken didn't receive the email from McCavity until 1.45pm. The account then apologised for knowing about the email before the council leader did. On November 21, the account tweeted, by the way, yesterday's email to Susie, she'll probably confirm I knew before it even reached her it was coming. She didn't get it to one o'clock. I told her it was coming yesterday morning. The troll account then tweeted details from two Freedom of Information responses said to Labour. Councillor Martin McElroy, including one about the former Lord Provost Eva Belander's clothing expenses before they were made public in newspapers. The row over the provost's spending ultimately led to her resignation. On October 6, 
Bears Fight Back tweeted, the chain-wearing centipede reports claim also has a huge effing corset to keep her belly in. The next day he wrote, how many pairs of shoes does a provost need and paid for by the public? Can someone explain? On October 8th, the Daily Record published a story on Lord Provost expenses with the article going online at 4.30am. A senior SNP source said, this Twitter account has continually sought to stroke tensions and repeatedly stalks, intimidates and harasses democratically elected councillors. The bile it spews out has had real ramifications for councillors, personal safety and their work in their communities. So how on earth has information belonged to prominent Labour people, including its group leader, repeatedly fallen into its hand. McCavity told the Sun, I can confirm that we have not provided any information to this particular Twitter account, and I am not aware of how this account would have received any information. The comments you have drawn to my attention are comments found on the fringes of Twitter, and this Labour group does not conduct its business through personal attacks. This article is by Andrew Leomonth. If you are blind or partially sighted, or know somebody who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio, where our daily podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF, you need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of 8, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk and remember, when setting up the player, ask for the Cune Review channels. Now, back to the main programme. The National, Monday, February 10th, 2020. Politics. Cherry urges SNP to force Prime Minister into Indyref 2 court fight but Wishart warns losing could set case back significantly. This article is by Andrew Learmonth. Nicola Sturgeon has been urged to force Boris Johnson into a courtroom battle over IndyRef 2, but there's disagreement between two of her most senior MPs about the risks involved. Joanna Cherry has called on the Scottish Government to draft legislation for a consultative vote on Scottish independence in a direct challenge to Downing Street. Setting out her case on Twitter yesterday, Cherry said, now is the moment to begin the preparations to jail Johnson, see you in court if he continues to block Scotland's demand for IndyRef 2. Holyrood passes a bill to hold a consultative referendum, then lets Johnson amount a legal challenge on whether they had the power to do so. The UK Supreme Court decides whether such a referendum is lawful. Many legal experts think we would win the argument. The Edinburgh Southwest MP said, added that even if the SNP minister lost the case, it would not set the campaign for independence back any further from where we are now. However, her Westminster colleague, Pete Wishart, wasn't convinced. He worried that a lost legal challenge would set the case for Indy back significantly. But, he added, this is something that should be kept in the armory. Both politicians were responding to a stunning new poll in our sister paper, the Sunday National revealing that Scottish voters overwhelmingly back a legal battle with Johnson if he continues to refuse a Section 30 order, which devolves the necessary powers to allow a gold standard independence referendum. The finding was the latest results from the panel-based poll conducted for the Scott Goes Pop block supported by the National. 
The poll question asked, there are differing legal opinions on whether the Scottish Parliament currently has the power to hold a consultative referendum on independence without Westminster's permission. If the UK government continues to refuse to give permission, do you think the Scottish Parliament should legislate to hold a referendum and then allow the courts to decide whether it can take place? Of those who expressed an opinion, 56% agreed with the statement, with 44% saying no. The SNP leadership has careful to stress any referendum must be seen as legally watertight. Though earlier this month, Sturgeon explicitly refused to rule out court action as she set out her preferred next steps in the campaign for independence. However, she said she would continue to push for a Section 30 order. Johnson has so far been clear that he has no intention of granting such an order, telling the First Minister he could not agree to any request for a transfer of power that would lead to any further independence referendums. Cherry told the Sunday National she welcomed the findings of the poll. She said, having Holyrood pass a bill to hold a referendum could be part of a multifaceted strategy to move us away from the current impasse and stop the constant and unproductive talk about Section 30 orders and seeking permission to act from Westminster. The balance of legal opinion is that we might win any legal challenge and I don't believe that to lose any court challenge mounted in response would set us back any further than where we are now. Boris Johnson should be in notice that we have options and we are not afraid to push forward. Responding to the poll, her colleague Wishart warned that a consultative referendum could ultimately be boycotted by the pro-union side, even if legal. He also warned of the cons consequences of losing to the UK government in the Supreme Court. This is fantastic, but it doesn't get around the problem that without UK engagement, there will be no proposition and therefore difficulties in any successful referendum being recognised. And I don't get that a lost legal challenge is problem-free. It would set the case for Indy back significantly. However, this is something that should be kept in the armory. But right now we are winning and support for independence rising with toy interest sergeants, which will only continue. It's getting everything properly in a row. We will need a huge majority if it's a Holyrood poll. Earlier this month, the panel-based poll which carried out between January 28 and 31 put support for independence at 52%. This article is by Andrew Learmonth. The National, Monday, February 10th, 2020. Opinion, scandal sales by the SNP will get through. This article is by Ruth Wishart. Scandal sales, tabloid newspaper editors notice. If they can knit a viker, bishop or politician into a scandal-related story, so very much the better. I mentioned this eternal reverity, not to excuse the deplorable behaviour of a former cabinet SNP secretary in the SNP government, but merely to point out there are other motivations in play when journalists use a scandal to bash a government which is not to their taste. Or sometimes to screw the opposition as it happens, the sum went through a brief flirtation with the SNP as recently as the 2015 UK elections. Well, bits of it did. In Scotland, it urged a vote for Nicola Sturgeon, whilst English editions wanted its southern punters to plight their troth to David Cameron. In other words, the motivation was principally to back whoever wasn't Labour. Yet, in the world of tabloid, circulation boosters politicians are temporary. Scandal is permanent. Witness the column inches devoted to the televised coming out of Philip Schofield last week. Every last angle is being wrung out of this tale of everyday gaydom. 
including dispatching reporters to talk to other folks whose partners have left a heterosexual union to pursue a lesbian or gay life. So in the case of Derek Mackay, this is the second time he had been tabloid fodder. The first was when he opted to leave his own marriage and children seven years ago. But in order to sell scandal, the media concerned need to be assured of willing buyers. Readers, there is no shortage. Wander with me down the highways and byways of our fine nation and we will find punchers knowledgeable about every jot and title of the Mackay saga who will simultaneously be hard pushed to recall a single line of the budget so eloquently delivered by his junior minister. Politicians are very well aware of this and rightly fearful of the consequences when one of their own is trapped in the tabloid headlights. The SNP government, in jargon, has long been trying to price in the fallout from the Alex Salmon court case next month. The charges laid and his robust denial of them are destined to be manna from heaven for certain media outlets. And indeed, given Mr. Salmon's high profile, the case will be minutely covered by the entire media. So not for the first time, Nicola Sturge might find herself vicariously embroiled in news headlines generated by her male colleagues. She might reflect, however, that other political women in other places have had rather more intimate crosses to hear. You'll recall Hillary Clinton enduring a series of excruciating TV interviews falling the serial indiscretions of her high-flying husband, whose undeniable talent for politics was matched only by his lack of libido control. He's a hard dog to keep on the porch. Quoth, his wife in one of the more masterly pieces of understatement. You may remember Segaline Royal, the father of whose four children, Francois Hollande, moved not her but his latest mistress into the French presidential place in Paris, then proceeded to cheat on her too. Other women are living evidence of the power gulf between female employee and predatory employer. Consider those lining up to tell a US courtroom about some of the less savory alleged casting methods of Harvey Weinstein or those former female Fox News employees whose maltreatment by former Fox CEO, the late Roger Isles, is now the subject of the current film Bombshell. There is too a matter of sex and gender which has been bubbling away in the media, causing some bad blood between women inside and out of both Hollywood and Westminster. <coughs> the reason you may have read less about what we might loosely term transgender wars is because anyone daring to raise their hand above the parapet swiftly gets it shot off. The essence of the argument is to move self-identification of trans people avoiding the need for medical confirmation. Trans activists see this as no more than the overdue recognition of the human rights of a minority. Derek Mackay resigned from the Scottish government after it emerged he had sent hundreds of online message messages to a 16-year-old boy. Others worry that there is an implicit danger of women's safe spaces being jeopardised. Senior SNP figures such as Joan McAlpine and Joanna Cherry have been targeted by trans activists and have those feminists who are accused of taking the wrong side in what is a complex debate deserving of more than a knee-jerk abuse. Even to write such a sentence is to really accept the certainty of a Twitter onslaught. Yet those of us who have marched for women's rights and indeed human rights these many long years find it difficult to be haringued by people carrying placards saying trans rights are human rights. 
as if we had somehow failed to notice or call out a particular area of discrimination. The uncomfortable fact is that building and maintaining a fair and equal society means accepting not any one sector has a monopoly on the moral high ground. And ensuring that in protecting the rights of one minority, nothing impinges on those of another. The day this can be discussed in a venom-free environment will be a much happier one. So this is going to be a very bumpy few months, one way and another for the Scottish government. People may not have read the small print in the budget, but they will have concerns about public services as and when they affect their own lives. We are all purely self-absorbed in this way when it comes to gorging the success or otherwise of those we vote into government. On the plus side, for the SNP administration, there is no sight of an alternative and competent front bench waiting in the wings. Whatever the question, you instinctively know Jackson Carlaw, CBE, Richard Leonard, nor Willie Rennie is not the answer. This article is by Ruth Wishart. Remember, this weekly digest programme is just a selection of what we produce. You can access more daily content online for free at qnreview.com forward slash free podcasts for free daily podcasts of the Herald Scotland and Evening Times and weekly digests of the National and Inside Soap magazine. Alternatively, you can access all of these services via a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio player. Now, back to the main programme. The National. Tuesday, 11th of February 2020. News. £840,000 grant for Scottish Historic Conservation. This article is by Tom Jarvis. Historic buildings in Scond needing repairs have been given more than £840,000 towards four conservation projects. Repairs and preservation works at Hospital Field House in Arbroath, Donnelly Castle in Oban, the Inverness Creative Academy and Nissan Hunts at the former Caltibragan Prisoner of War Camp in Persia will each receive a share of £842,802 from Historic Environment Scotland. The funding will come from the Historic Environment Repair Grant Programme, which supports works to buildings or ancient monuments of special architectural, historical or archaeological significance across Scotland. A grant of £500,000 has been given to renovate the former Inverness Royal Academy, which plans to develop the 125-year-old building to provide office space for cultural organisations and social enterprises. The 19th century Hospital Field House was designed by artist Patrick Allen Fraser and turned into one of Scone's first art schools on his death. A £92,387 grant will allow trustees to restore buildings within the grounds, including Scotland's only fernery designed in 1872 to house two New Zealand tree ferns. Now as Camp 21, the County Bragan prisoner of war camp near Comrie has been given £108,810 to redevelop 11 huts at the site. Repairs needed on the outer walls and tower of the 15th century Donnelly Castle have also been awarded £141,605 with the conservation work forming part of a wider regeneration of the castle. Culture Secretary Fiona Heaslop said the funding for the restoration and repair of historic sites underlines the Scottish Government's commitment through the work of Historic Environment Scotland to preserving our incredible built heritage 
for future generations. This is a fantastic example of how historic buildings can be adapted to new uses. This article is by Tom Jarvis. The National, Tuesday, February 11th, 2020. Politics. Nicola Sturgeon's Brexit defeat is every bit as profound as Jeremy Corbyn's. This article is by Colin Fox. Nicola Sturgeon's major announcement in response to Boris Johnson's second referendum refusal proved to be something of a damp squib. Brexit Day, chosen as the occasion for her speech because of its symbolism, will be remembered as the gamble she lost. And since the consequences for the independence movement may be far-reaching, let's speak honestly. Nicola Sturgeon's Brexit defeat is every bit as profound as Jeremy Corbyn's. She staked the independence case on stopping it, and yet she knew she was going to lose. Her promise to keep Scotland in the EU put the independence cart before the UK horse. She grievously overplayed the fact that Scotland voted to remain while dismissing the only result that legally mattered in the unitary UK, the Democratic Leave majority. All her subsequent errors stemmed from an ill-conceived plan to draw Remain voters into the independence camp via the shortcut. How Brexit will work for Scotland remains unknown. She confessed last Friday there should have been gasps at this U-turn because the same First Minister adamantly predicted throughout the past four years that economic Armageddon was around the corner. When no such devastation occurred, she kept on digging, proven wrong on forecast. After forecast, she now simply suggests the outcome is unknown. The Tories have shown contempt for democracy. The First Minister taught her SNP audience at a dynamic earth in Edinburgh, but the charge is undermined rather by her own demand that a 2016 result be unilaterally overthrown. The fact it was a UK-wide result and the majority of Scots voted to remain within that United Kingdom just two years earlier, the unavoidable consequence of the 2014 referendum means Scotland remains subject to decisions taken by the UK government. The polls showed most Scots remain unpersuaded by the case Nicola Sturgeon has made for NUF2 this year or next year. Boris Johnson stands atop the moral high ground as well as having an 80-seat Westminster majority until we get it. We need to mobilise public opinion sufficiently enough to force him to grant that second vote. Nicola Sturgeon is an extremely conventional politician who is not comfortable carrying forward both the parliamentary and extra-parliamentary campaigning required. The Yes Movement has paid a high price for collapsing into a single political party with such an attitude. This is the charge to paraphrase the First Minister that needs to come soon. For it is not only unity we need in Scotland's independence movement, but greater clarity and a much more serious strategy. Her promise to keep Scotland in the EU put the indie cart before the UK horse. This article is by Colin Fox. Visually impaired people are being invited to see if they are eligible for a free, specially adapted radio from a charity. The British Wireless for the Blind Fund, BWBF, provides the equipment to those with sight loss around the UK who meet its criteria. Radio is a lifeline to those who are blind and partially sighted, providing companionship and helping them to keep in touch with what's going on in the world, as well as in the local community. BWBF offers equipment free of charge to those who have sight loss and are in receipt of a means-tested benefit. BWBF is launching its Reaching Out campaign to try and increase awareness about their equipment and help more people who are blind and partially sighted. 
Our regional development manager, Sophie Weldon, said, Our radios are designed so that a person with sight loss can use them easily and independently. All equipment is delivered to the home by a volunteer who sets it all up and provides support in using it. We offer a range of equipment, digital radios, CD players, memory stick players, internet radio and even a specially designed app. Our radios are vital to someone who cannot see. They provide news, information and entertainment, but also more importantly companionship and a friendly service. If you or someone you know is interested in a BWBF radio, please contact Sophie Weldon at sophie at blind.org.uk that is S-O-P-H-I-E at B-L-I-N-D dot org dot U-K or phone 01283 that's 01283 that is 07540-724-063. To find out more about the British Wireless for the Blind Fund, follow us on Twitter at British Wireless, like us on Facebook, or go to blind.org.uk. Now, back to the main programme. The National, Tuesday, February 11th, 2020. Opinion. Support for independence will be unaffected by SNP scandals. This article is by Wee Ginger Dog. The dog doesn't like to blow his own trumpet with his paws lacking an opposable thumb and all that. But I did predict that this year we'd start to see opinion polls showing a consistent majority for independence. It's already begun. We've now had three opinion polls where those in favour of Scottish independence tally 50% or above. The fieldwork for these polls was carried out before Brexit had actually happened and it's highly likely that once the reality of the UK out with the EU begins to be felt that supporters for independence as the most realistic route back into the EU will only grow. We've also seen polling evidence that the Scottish public take a particularly jaundiced view of British democracy. In Scotland, the British state is not so much considered a gold standard for democratic accountability, but more a cheap chocolate coin covered in gold-coloured foil. It leaves a bad taste in your mouth and rots your teeth, according to the poll carried out by the Scott Goes Pop block. 56% of voters in Scotland think that the UK is no longer a fully democratic country. After all, if the result of Scottish elections can be repeatedly and blatantly ignored and introduced by a Westminster government which uses support in the rest of the UK to override Scottish opinion on Scottish matters like the crucial question of whether Scotland wishes to have a referendum on its place within the UK. It calls into question the very fundamentals of democracy. How can you call yourself a democratic country if a ballot is won and it's still ignored? It's all very well for the Tories and their fellow travellers to demand that the 2014 referendum result is respected but their demands might have slightly more traction if they respected the outcome of every democratic event in Scotland since. There's no sign that they're prepared to do so. Instead of democracy, Boris Johnson is giving us a series of cinema advertisements extolling the virtues of the UK. Apparently, the people of Scotland will be happy to overlook the democratic shortcomings of the British state because of an advert they see in the cinema between a puff piece for the local curry shop and the main feature. If there's to be truth in advertising, then it will feature a gravely voiced announcer intoning, 
in a world where your vote is ignored. The problem here for Boris Johnson is that everyone in Scotland knows that an advert for the UK is like an advert for a bank. We know that the person who writes the advert isn't the one who gives out the loans. A cinema advert has even less political relevance than a vow made by the leaders of the main UK parties on the front page of a Scottish newspaper in the lead up to the referendum. And we all know how that one turned out. When your credibility has been destroyed, you're not going to get it back by demanding people to trust you. You have to do something about it, and that's precisely what Boris Johnson is not prepared to do. He's got his majority in the Commons and can do what he likes. It's going to take a lot more than a cheesy cinema advert to save the UK, but in Britain, it's the tinfoil appearance of things that's more important than the actual substance. A series of cinema adverts means that the British government can pretend that it's something to save the Union instead of actually doing anything concrete which might actually lead to saving the Union, like recognising the legitimate democratic aspirations of Scotland. It's a bit like a landlord deciding they can deal the structural failure which is threatening to bring an overcrowded apartment block down by giving the occupants a leaflet about the joys of communal bathrooms. The people of Scotland are more aware of true nature of the British state than Boris Johnson gives us credit for, which is why according to the state recent poll from the Scott Goes Pop block, a substantial majority would support attempts to hold a referendum without a section 30 order. That's a remarkable finding considering the media barrage we've experienced over the past few months, which characterise a referendum is illegal or as a wildcat vote. People in Scotland recognise that if the country is to have its democratic demands met, then eventually the intransigence of Boris Johnson will have to be tackled head on. It's clear that what the British government and the Tories are hoping for is that events will lead to support for independence dropping away and all they have to do is sit and tight and weather the storm. They are hoping that unrelated events such as scandals surrounding Derek Mackay or the forthcoming Alex Salmon trial will wear away support for the SNP and for independence following last week's revelations about Mackay. We've already seen the predictable articles in the Scottish media that the episode signals at the beginning of the end of the SNP. We've seen such articles repeatedly since 2009 but it's never been all over for the SNP and it won't be now. That's because support for the SNP is fundamentally driven and support for independence and in turn support for independence is driven by the actions of the British state, not by the actions of the SNP, scandals involving prominent SNP politicians, constant criticisms of Scottish public services which are always subject to budgetary and macroeconomic constraints imposed by Westminster will not dent support in Scotland for independence. That's because what really drives the desire for Scottish self-determination is the way in which democratic aspirations of the people of Scotland cannot be accommodated by the failing structures of a British state. Figures in the Labour Party who call for a fundamental constitutional reorganisation of the UK in order to save the Union are correct. That's the only way to ensure that Scotland remains a part of the UK. Their problem is that there is no appetite for the rest of the UK for the reforms that Scotland needs. That's why support for independence is only going to continue to grow irrespective of what else happens in British or Scottish politics this year. This article is by Wee Ginger Doug. The National, Tuesday,
February 11th, 2020. News. The story behind an ignored part of Scots history. How calls for reform led to the Radical War of 1820. This article is unattributed. If there is one episode in the history of Scotland which is more ignored and misunderstood than the Radical War of 1820, then I cannot think of it. Also known as the Scottish Insurrection, it was a very short period in Scottish history that could have seen this country torn out of the unequal union with England and put on a progression to true democracy 100 years before that was achieved with votes for women. Workers' rights could have been won decades before the trade union movement arose and Scotland could have been a beacon to the world in enlightened power per government of a nation. Instead, the British state mercilessly suppressed the workers of movement and executed three of its leaders, James Wilson, John Bard and Andrew Hardy. There were other judicial murders and deportations and innocent civilians were gunned down in the streets, especially in Greenock. I consider these events of 1820 and their preceding reasons and bitter but ultimately triumphant aftermath to be among the most underreported matters in Scottish history. Many histories, and I have a collection of them, either ignore it completely or play it down as an aberration at a time when Scotland was really starting to play a part in the British Imperial Project. The 200th anniversary of the Radical War will take place in April and next week the new Palesley Book Festival will launch with an evening directed to the work of Maggie Craig, a real expert on Scottish radicalism, which will be the theme of the festival, the organiser state. Drawing on the Paisley Radicals of 1820 as inspiration, the Paisley Book Festival will explore how we can honour their challenging ideas and vibrant energy 200 years later. I wish them every good fortune and to tie in with the festival today, and over the next fortnight, I'm going to deal at length with an insurrection that might, just might, have succeeded in changing Scotland and this nation. I first wrote about the Radical War two years ago, concentrating in the bloody slaughter in Greenock after the insurrection had ended. And I was amazed at the response from the people who confessed they knew nothing about these events. Over the last two years, I've returned again and again to study of a period that is actually well documented and from which modern proponents of independence and societal reform could learn much. I will argue that far from being an aberration, the radical war really did change Scotland because it politicised people in a way not surpassed to the days of Red Clydeside indeed. I will argue that the radical war paved the way for the upheavals of 1919. I will also try to show the lessons from history that the Yes Movement can learn. Some of my conclusions will not be popular. Next week I will deal with the actual war itself, a one-sided state slaughter in fact. And in week three I will show how the aftermath changed Scotland. Today however I want to deal with the events which led up to the 1820 Scottish insurrection and yes, that is exactly what it was, a violent uprising against the government. The seeds of radical war were shown abroad 
after the Jacobite rising of 1745-46, the monarchy and the UK government concentrated on suppressing Highland society and culture, aware that much of Lowland Scotland had not been involved in Jacobitism. Indeed, many areas opposed Charles Edward Stuart and they were plenty of Scots in the forces of Duke of Cumberland. The emigration of Scots to the USA continued apace and while many of them remained true to the crown, there were many who fought for the Congress forces under George Washington, his friends General Hugh Mercer and General Adam Stephen Brigadier, General Arthur St. Clair and his personal physician Dr. James Craig were all Scots. The American Revolution and the American War of Independence were all known to Scots, not least because a quarter of all the British forces in the war were Scottish. That so many subjects of the king were prepared to take up arms to forge a new nation made a big impression on many Scots and when the French Revolution came along in 1789, it was watched with great interest by many Scots who were agitating for political reform in the UK. Among them, though operating in secret, was Robert Burns, an excise man who was in regular contact with many radicals. He even wrote an ode for George Washington's birthday, which made clear where his sympathies lay. See, gathering thousands while I sing, a broken chain exulting bring, and dash it in a triumph's face, and dare him to his very beard, and term he no more is feared, no more the despot of Columbia's race. A tyrant's protest insults breathed, they shout a people freed. With the French Revolution ongoing, the British establishment was terrified of the reformers who fought with words, pamphlets and even cartoons. Some of the depictions of George III bordered on the treasonable, the most influential document of the time was The Rights of Man, published by Thomas Paine in 1791 as a direct reply to Edmund Burke, whose reflections on the revolution in France contained these words. Those who attempt to level never equalised. No wonder Burns called him a poisonous reptile. When the French Revolution came along in 1789, it was watched with great interest by Scots who were agitating for political reform in the UK. Payne hit back hard, and in contrast to Burke's sales of 30,000, mainly to the land-owing class, Rights of Man is said to have sold half a million copies worldwide. It contained revolutionary ideas, such as the abolition of hereditary rights. He did not, however, advocate the overthrow of the monarch and a written constitution for the UK. One passage has always seemed to correct to me. Individuals themselves, each in his own personal and sovereign right, entered into a correct with each other to produce a government, and this is only made in which governments have a right to arise, and the only principle on which they have a right to exist. In other words, sovereignty resides with the people. No wonder Payne's work had such an impact in Scotland, nor that the establishment sentenced him to death for seditious libel against the crown, a sentence never carried out because he fled to France, 
His prosecutor, by the way, was a Scot, Sir Archibald MacDonald. Payne's rights of man heavily influenced the reformers in Scotland in the 1970s, of whom the most famous is Thomas Muir of Huntershale. The radical lawyer, who is an ardent campaigner for democracy, he is known as the father of Scottish democracy. Muir came to prominence in the Society of the Friends of the Scottish People. A reforming organisation which held conventions in 1792 and 1793. He thought it simply wrong that Scotland should have just 3,000 people electing all its MPs or that so many seats were uncontested because the electorate knew the results in advance. This was a time when local authorities were often self-selected and lords and lairds dictated how people voted. Muir was charged with sedition, particularly for speaking against the union, and after show trial was sentenced to be deported to Australia for 14 years. Hanging Judge Lord Braxfield said in his summing up, a government in every country should be just like a corporation, and in this country it is made up of the landed interest which alone has a right to be represented. As for the rabble, who has nothing but personal property, what hold has the nation on them? Muir's own speech has gone into history. What then has been my crime? Not the lending to a relation a copy of Mr. Payne's works, not the giving away to another few numbers of an innocent and constituential publication, but for having to there to be, according to the measure of my feeble abilities, a strenuous and active advocate for an equal representation of the people in the house of the people for having dared to attempt to accomplish a measure by legal means which was to diminish the weight of their taxes and to put an end to the effusion of their blood. From my infancy to this moment, I have devoted myself to the cause of the people. It is a good cause. It will ultimately prevail. It will finally triumph. Muir was not the only one to suffer such a fate simply for arguing for political reform. The government crackdown on reformers saw several more people deported and Muir was accompanied on a ship to Australia by fellow radicals William Skirving, Maurice Margaret and Thomas Palmer. After war with France broke out and the conflict escalated, the cause of reform dwindled away. as the government made a plea to patriotism in the face of the enemy. They made a serious mistake, however, with the Malatia Act of 19... They made a serious mistake, however, with the Murtia Act of 1797, which was resented across Scotland, but which was imposed without armed revolution against the authorities. Resentment was building up, albeit quietly, Radicalism and reform went underground in the final years of the 18th century and the first years of the 19th century. An organisation of radicals called the United Scotsmen briefly flirted with the idea of joining the United Irishmen in a rising against the government, but there simply was not the support for it. And it collapsed in, in 1798 with the trial and deportation of its Dundonian leading figure, George Mealmaker, if truth be told, though there had been local committees across Scotland, there was no mass uprising for the cause of reform. And that remained the case until well 
into the second decade of the 19th century, especially as Britain was soon fighting not just France, but also the USA from 1812. In the first decade of the 19th century, Scotland saw economic decline despite the advance of the Industrial Revolution largely because weavers, then a large part of the working class, saw their earnings halved on average. Organising themselves into local unions, in 1812 they petitioned the courts for an increase in wages. This was granted by employers would not pay and so the first major strike in Scottish industry in the 19th century took place lasting nine weeks and ending only when the authorities arrested the leaders in Glasgow and put them in jail for months at a time. The growth of the Luddite movement is often credited to that Scottish strike. It embraces weavers, factory workers and miners and was soon a real threat to the authority of the capitalist class. Yet wherever a potential revolution broke out, the various arms of the government, including the military, reacted with ferocity and reform was kept at the bay. In 1815, Waterloo ended the Napoleonic Wars and in a few short months, economic hardship across the UK proved disastrous for working people. Discharged soldiers came back into community, but there are previous few jobs for them in 1816, a huge meeting on Glasgow Green, which apparently involved 40,000 people, heard calls for governmental reform and an end to the hated corn laws, which blocked the importation of cheap grain from abroad. Scotland was ripe for radical reform. It started in England. This article is unattributed. The National. Wednesday, February 12, 2020. News. Unique weather leads to crossing closure. Drivers are forced to take 35 mile diversions and endure two hour delays. This article is by Andrew Learmonth. The Queen's Ferry crossing looks likely to remain closed to traffic until later today with transport bosses saying the unique set weather conditions could put the safety of travellers at risk. The bridge was initially closed to traffic heading south on Monday night after eight cars were hit by ice falling from cables. It is the first time the £1.35 billion bridge has been closed since it opened in 2017. It coincided with roadworks on the old bridge, which meant it was also closed to the general traffic, although public transport could still go that way. The combined closures left commuters facing detours of up to 35 miles, chaos on the road followed, with drivers facing delays of up to two hours. Mark Arden, of the 4th Bridges unit at AMI, said there was little choice but to close the bridge. We had a combination of strong westerly winds and a mixture of snow and sleet that resulted in snow accumulations on the main cables of the Queen's Ferry crossing. At the an elevated height, that snow accumulation became chilled. It accumulated an a reasonable size and fell to the carriageway and it was on the grounds of safety that we took the decision to close the bridge. Michael Matheson, the Scottish Transport Secretary, apologised to drivers saying, I recognise the frustration of travellers today and I very much regret the bridge has been closed for the first time, but it is a bridge that's given us much greater resilience than the old 4th Road Bridge. There's now been something like 30 occasions when we would have only a partial or no, no use of the 4th Road Bridge, whereas the Queen's Ferry Crossing is continuing to function. He added, Engineers have 
been closely monitoring and studying the unique weather conditions causing this issue with a build-up of snow and ice on the Queen's Ferry crossing. We are developing our understanding of these conditions, which involve a certain consistency of snow and or sleet, wind speed and direction, interacting with fluctuating low temperatures. This is leading to an ice formation on the bridge's towers and cables at low temperature, which has subsequently fallen from the bridge when thawed. We are doing all we can to mitigate the impacts of this closure. A diversion route is in place via the Kirkcaldyn Bridge and I would encourage those travelling from further away, Perth or Dundee to Glasgow for example, to consider an alternative route, avoiding the main diversion where possible. ScotRail has put extra services in place to assist with the problem caused by the road's bridge's closure. When it was opened in 2017, the bridge was supposed to be able to withstand all types of weather. Ami said a combination of snow, wind and fluctuating temperatures had caused ice to build up and then fall. Sensors to detect ice build up earlier are due to be installed this year. JP Ward, whose car was hit by falling snow and ice on Monday said, I saw big white blocks falling from the bridge, thinking it was snow. A few cars were swaying to miss them and hitting the brakes, causing potential accidents. He added, at this point, I saw several pieces falling across three lanes. The blocks were ranging from the size of small coffee tables to footballs, but they were as thick as phone books. Councillor David Ross, co-leader of Five Councils, said there were questions to be asked about the construction of the bridge. This is this closure, even for a day or two, causes considerable difficulties for residents and businesses in Fife. I understand the closure is because of the danger of falling ice and snow from the bridge. Given that it's not unusual for Scotland to experience periods of freezing and snowy weather, I want to know if this was, wasn't taken into consideration in the bridge's design. This article is by Andrew Learmonth. Q and Review Print Speaking to the Blind are a charity based in Bishop Briggs. We're currently looking to recruit volunteer access to audio ambassadors in Eastern Bartonshire to place leaflets and business cards at businesses, shops and amenities in the area and to show the public how to listen to daily and weekly online articles from the Herald Scotland, Evening Times, The National and Inside Soap magazine for free. If you would like to volunteer and become an access to audio ambassador, please contact Michael Rankin on 0141 772 3976 or email aaatl at qandreview.com. That's aaatl at qandreview.com. In addition, we are also recruiting for volunteer readers and technicians. If you're interested in reading or technically supporting a recording team, please contact us on 0141 772 3976 or email information at qandreview.com. Details of all of our volunteering opportunities are available on our website at qandreview.com. Thank you. Now, back to the main programme. The National. Wednesday, February 12, 2020. News. £20 million boost for Scott families. Tens of thousands claim new payments. This article is by Kirstine Patterson. Scottish families have claimed more than £20 million in early year support payments in just one year, figures show. The new Best Start grant was introduced 
for expecting and new parents on low incomes in December 2018. Administered by Social Security Scotland, it replaced the Sure Start Maternity Grant from the Department for Work and Pensions. It was extended to include children between 6 months and 3 years old along with another payment for children for, of school age. Another payment was introduced to replace Healthy Start vouchers and cover food costs. New Scottish Government figures show more than £21.3 million was paid out by the end of last year. Most of the applications, 45,590, were for pregnancy and baby payments which launched before the rest of the benefits were available. Launched in April, the early learning benefit drew more than 41,000 applications. Around 22,000 people applied for school age payment and 34,725 sought to help with the food costs. Most people waited just 10 days for their applications to be processed, although that increased in October, November and December when most took it at least 16 days. The Scottish Government said the introduction of food payment means two decisions are now made at the same time, increasing admin times. Social Security Secretary Shirley Ann Somerville said she was delighted at the exceptional response to the package, adding, The best start payments show what a difference we can make when we create social security benefits with fairness, dignity and respect at their heart. She added, For a two-child family, the best start grant package will provide a total support of £1,900 to £1,400, more than they would get under the previous UK system. This shows the direct difference we are making to families across Scotland with our new powers over Social Security. John Dickey, Director of Child Poverty Action Group in Scotland, commented, It's great to see hard-pressed families across Scotland receiving the new Best Start grants. They are providing much-needed additional support at key points in children's young lives. It is vital that everything possible is done to maximise take of grants so that every eligible child benefits. This article is by Christine Patterson. The National. Wednesday, February 12, 2020. Politics. UK government is fueling independence. This article is by Gregor Young. The UK government has been fueling Scottish independence by failing to engage with public opinion, it has been suggested. SNP MP Tommy Shepherd warned the Conservatives against throwing out sensible proposals made by his party during a debate on whether Scotland could have a separate migration system. Speaking in the House of Commons last night, he said that there are a rising number of people in the country who want Scotland to be able to choose a different path to that of the United Kingdom. He said, A clear majority of people who would express the wish that we should choose a different path, an independent path where we could control our own destiny, make our own decisions, make our own mistakes and learn from them because the people that live in that country and only the people who live in that country have got the right to determine how they are governed going forward. That is a sentiment that is growing now in Scotland and as much as the government may want to put its head in the sand and ignore what's happening, I caution them to engage with the public opinion in Scotland because every time they refuse to do so, they simply fuel the appetite for change. They fuel the number of people who say, we don't want to put up with this anymore, we now look with fresh eyes at the alternatives on offer. He continued, in many ways the government so far since the election has been doing this party's job for it. The opinion polls are rising, more and more people in Scotland are demanding and getting behind the cause of independence 
and we haven't even started the campaign. This is all the work of the United Kingdom government. Shepard added, if you throw out sensible proposals like this one, which would be to the benefit of the Scottish economy, the benefit of the people of Scotland, but which might also be something very sensible to do while Scotland remains in the United Kingdom. If you throw this out and ignore the arguments that we are making, then you feel that appetite and that desire even more. Asked about which currency would be used in independent Scotland, he said, we will not be too many years hence until Scotland will be a strong and prosperous economy with its own currency, its own central bank and punching well above its weight compared to what it is today. On the prospect of whether an independent Scotland, which was part of the European Union, would use the euro, Shepard said, no it wouldn't, no it wouldn't, nor is there any requirement for it to be so. Tory MP and Scotland Office Minister Douglas Ross said there would not be a meeting of minds with the SNP on the issue of separate migration system, adding, this government is committed to introducing new immigration system that works for the whole of the UK, for Scotland, England, Wales and Northern Ireland. That's why the government is engaged and continues to engage extensively with many stakeholders across Scotland, including the Scottish government, but crucially also businesses across a wide range of sectors. Russ said the UK government is committed to developing a system which addresses the challenges in the whole country, adding, we have no plans to devolve powers of immigration. He claimed such a move would bring about significant complexities. For Labour, Shadow Immigration Minister Bill Roberio Addy agreed with the need for the Home Secretary to engage positively with proposals, but also said we on this front bench do not believe Scotland is a uniquely special case that would require a tailored migration policy for Scotland. She went on, the widespread use of devolved powers in immigration could create a bizarre and unworkable recruitment process and practice across the regions if others started to take a less rational approach because of changes in government. This article is by Gregor Young. The National Wednesday, February 12, 2020 Opinion Why the Irish election result is a clarion call to Scots this article is by Tashima Ahmed Sheikh. There's a rotch wind blown in from across the Irish Sea. This is not Storm Kira, but the fresh wind of changing Irish politics. Our Celtic cousins have shone a bright green beacon into the darkness of global politics and into the festering narrow and divisive Brexit landscape of the UK. Not for the first time, the Irish are doing it their own way focusing on priorities for their future as a whole nation, not just the welfare of elites, the already selfish rich. They are continuing to reject the path chosen by their neighbours across the sea. It started a century ago with independence. It's continued with the strength of equals in partnership with the EU and their unwavering stance on Brexit, and it carries on in the hopes and dreams of the people of Ireland for a fairer and better nation for all. It's hard to know where to start in terms of analysing the positivity of this Irish election and Sinn Féin and the left's gargantuan success. But let's start by saying what this result does not represent. Much to the extraordinary surprise and bewilderment of much of the British media and many journalists who should have known a lot better, this win for Sinn Féin is not about populism. It is very po opposite of that. It's the yin to the Brexit yang. It's the kickback to the political manoeuvring of Steve Bannon and Trump and Farage and Johnson and their vested self-interest and lack of humanity. Trumpism and Johnsonism is all about me, me, me. It's about fear and lowering standards of behaviour. It's an excuse to batten down the hatches and give up 
on community and society to abandon those in need. I'm alright, Union Jack. And if your face doesn't fit internationally, then beware the blood-spangled banner. This election result in Ireland is instead a ringing endorsement from people for change where it matters most, for better housing and tackling homelessness, for improvements in their health service, for secure pensions and job opportunities. It's about bolstering community, helping the needy, supporting their young people and those new to their shores. It's got absolutely nothing to do with Britain or Brexit. Ireland's call is outwards and upwards. This isn't some romantic and subjective interpretation of the result from an independent Nista who is green with envy and trapped in our Scottish limbo. This is rejection of populism and the right-wing agendas is borne out by the vote, by statistics that show less than 2% of the population voted for parties and individuals with divisive and anti-immigration stance. And an award here for the defeated old firm of Fianna Fáil and Finn Gael. These are decent parties who have produced great figures who have guided the state through good times and bad. I have never seen elections concede with civility and grace, which was mustered in their many defeated candidates. It bodes well for the future. In an election poll on issues most important to voting public in Ireland, housing and homelessness topped the bill, with immigration and Brexit right at the very bottom. In the exit poll, 65% said they wanted more public spending over tax cuts. Sinn Féin campaigned on a manifesto for welcoming refugees and introducing hate crime laws and they won a quarter of the first preference votes. The message is loud and clear. The Irish wish to return social justice into their burgeoning economy and they will not be defined by xenophobia or isolationism. Something else important stands out for me from this election result and it's illustrated best from a column in the Irish Times. The headline for journalist Jennifer O'Connell's analysis read Pragmatism beat idealism as deeply engaged voters navigated change. Ireland has had almost a decade of engagement with constitutional convention, citizen assemblies and increasing voter involvement as a result. The repeal, the 8th and the marriage equality referendums changed the face of Irish politics and indicated a huge cultural shift from the old ways. A massive rejection of the status quo, writes O'Connell. There's another polar opposite of populism, an educated and informed electorate making educated and informed decisions, but the most important point in O'Connell's article is in the word conversation. She contrasts the slogan-heavy message of the British general election with deep levels of participation in the Irish one. You'd ask the Irish people what the issues were and you might as well pull up a stool because you were going to be there for some time. Scotland, does this remind you of anything? Of a referendum back in 2014 where voters became more engaged than ever before? Once you're involved like this and you see the chinks of light at the end of the tunnel for change, there's no going back and our voting record proves this point. Triple mandate from the Scottish people for a second independence referendum ring any bills? We didn't fall for Brexit in 2016 and we didn't fall for get Brexit done in 2019. We're operating on a level far deeper than silly slogans and throwaway one-outliners. Because our future and our desire to build a nation on social justice with a fair tax system and economy and a warm welcome for new Scots sound very similar to how chosen by the Irish people. Let us look to the West and act.
This Irish election result is a clarion call to us Scots. If the Irish can do it, so can we. Because it looks to me like there's already a bridge between Scotland and Ireland and it's got nothing to do with any Boris Johnson vanity project. This bridge is built on something far more solid and meaningful, a belief in a better nation and a better future for all. Or to quote the greatest Irish right of all of them, in dreams begin responsibilities. Our responsibility to welcome a new dawn in the great Glen of Scotland. This article is by Tashima Ahmed Sheikh.